Well, again, please turn your Bibles to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11 is where we'll be today. Some of you might remember in the 1970s, a cosmetic company called L'Oreal Paris came out with a new marketing campaign that helped them sell a bunch of stuff. And that slogan was, because you're worth it. Some of you already knew it. Uh, It wasn't the guys. The slogan was, because you're worth it. Ladies, why should you spend your hard-earned money on those beauty products, not because you need to look nice for others, not because people have expectations. No, 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 none of those things. Don't do it for anyone else. Do it because you, you're worth it. That's the idea of the slogan. Of course, there could be other uses of the same phrase. A young man may try to convince a young lady of his love for her with an extravagant gift and say, babe, you're worth it. Uh, uh, perhaps you might feel like you're overpaid for those tickets to the game until your team wins at the buzzer when you realize it was totally worth it. One guy might think a hunter's crazy to spend so much money on a tree stand, but that new golf club, it worked for Tiger. Man, I really need that thing. That's money well spent. That's worth it. And guys, I'm sorry, I've chosen to only throw the guys under the bus today. I'm not going to throw the ladies under the bus. You're welcome. That wouldn't be worth it, right, to do that. (laughs) The truth is, we all have different interests, don't we? It's a good reason for a married couple to work together on a budget, for your home to be on the same page, and also to keep track of your spending, so you can have that moment when you say, ooh, we spent more money on that this month than I realized. That's more important to us than we knew. But we all have different interests, and and we hold things or consider things to be of different value. Some stuff is worth more to us than others. Some things are worth more to us than others. Another way, we want some things more than others. And we do what we do because we want what we want. Now, When we want to show God his worth to us, guess what that's called? Worship. That's worship. The word worship means to render honor. To render honor. Worship is showing worth. And realize the significant implications of that truth. Uh, Music and singing can be one way We worship God. It's one way. It's not the way. Uh, But when the first commandment is uh, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, think about this. Is there a time when we can't worship God? The answer is no. Can you wake up in the morning in a way that worships? Can you get dressed in a way that worships? Can you plan your day in a way that worships? Can you talk to people for the glory of God? Can you work as unto the Lord? Colossians 3, by the way. Can you love your spouse and your family as an act of worship? Can you, young people, can you treat your boyfriend, girlfriend, or maybe your fiancé in such a way that is an act of worship to God and not them? It kind of sounds like your whole life 
could be an act of worship, a living sacrifice to God. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, remembering who he is and what he's done, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, a change in our thinking, a change in our desires, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So when that thinking changes, when the when our mind is renewed, what God calls good and acceptable and perfect, guess what we call it? Good and acceptable and perfect. We agree. Now, we've already considered the Lord's greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But let's also consider the first commandment from Exodus 20. Remember, that one is, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. Would you agree that if you truly, sincerely love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, the whole person, that it would be hard to allow some other false god to go before the one true God. And if and when you sincerely love God, you won't want anything else to come first. But when people show that they value other gods more highly than the true God, what is that called? And that's idolatry. Idolatry. And we might even ask, how would a person know that they've put another god over the real god? Uh, I don't worship idols. I've, how would you know that you've done something like that? And here's a good way to discern it. Remember, we do what we do because we want what we want. So, I can know that I've put something else before God if I'm willing to sin against the true God in order to please the other. Why would Israel be willing to throw their babies into the fire? Why would they do such a thing? Well, the false god Molech, what they thought he had to offer, had come before their god. Why would Israel prostitute themselves, whore themselves before the different seasons uh, to ask for rains and to ask for a good harvest? It's because they decided to rely on the false gods of the Canaanites instead of the Lord God that had brought them out of Egypt. So here's the order of events that transpires there. The order of events towards idolatry. Number one, I think God exists to give me what I want for my good pleasure. I think God exists for my good pleasure. That's mistake one. And number two, then, I decide that he has failed to meet my desires. I think God should do something for me. I think he dropped the ball, which results in three. I turn to something or someone else who can get the job done. That's the path to idolatry. This is idolatry. When something in creation claims the first place of importance in our hearts that only God is worthy of possessing. Romans 1.25 says it this way. They, people, exchanged, traded out. They exchanged the truth 
about God for a lie. You see the thinking being changed? They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and then worshipped, served the creature, the created thing. They worshipped the creature rather than the creator. So then if this is what idolatry is, what can become an idol? What can become an idol? What has the ability to unseat God from his rightful place in our affections? What could we give ourselves to? What could we want so badly that we're willing to sin in order to get it? Or willing to sin if we didn't get it? And the answer is, any created thing. Any created thing could become an idol. A person? Oh, yeah. A hobby? Yes. A promotion? Sure. My emotions? Mm-hmm. A car? A house? My reputation? A stamp collection? You name it. It can become an idol. It can become an idol. And is it not true? There's nothing wrong with any of those things, okay? Stamp collections are not the devil. But if or when we allow, we allow that created thing to unseat the creator, the God of the universe, as preeminent in our heart, as our greatest desire, we have just found a new idol, a new object of worship. And that thing or that person or that hobby will begin to rule our lives and will always, always prove to be a terrible God. Sports are a terrible God. Music is a terrible God. Work is a terrible God. Anxiety, a terrible God. Wealth, a life of ease. Terrible gods. Terrible gods. And now with that all in mind, we need to move into our passage for today. John 12, 1 through 11. If you remember from John 11, there was a major problem in Jerusalem. Jesus has just risen Lazarus from the dead, and there were witnesses. So they said, stink! What are we going to do? Worship him? No. No. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious leaders, they were worried that Jesus was going to mess with their system and destroy all that they had worked so hard to accomplish and to maintain, including their following these people and their place of prominence among the nation. Idolatry? And the Jewish leaders could not stand to lose this precious possession that they could feel slipping out of their fingers. And they were willing to sin in order to keep a hold of it. So the concern over Jesus gaining more followers, which would have resulted in the Jewish leaders losing followers, resulted in their desire and their plan to put Jesus to death. And now before we read verses 1 through 8 of John 12, let's look first, go down to verses 9 through 11. We're going to actually read those first today. John 12, verse Nine. When the large crowd 
of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they, that large crowd, came. They came, uh uh-oh, large crowd with Jesus. Bad news. But it says, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he, Jesus, had raised from the dead. So Jesus is drawing large crowds, and now Lazarus is also drawing a large crowd and pointing them to Jesus. So, what's a crowd-worshipping, glory-thirsty religious leader to do? Verse 10. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. That's what. Because on account of him... Many of the Jews were going away, as in away from them, and they were believing in Jesus. So in the last part of chapter 11, we saw this shifting, or just the potential of shifting of a crowd from the Jewish religious leaders to Jesus, and they resolve to have Jesus executed, of course. And then in chapter 12, verses 9 through 11, we see the threat of more people shifting away from the religious leaders and to Jesus by way of this formerly dead but now very much alive Lazarus. And they resolve to have Lazarus executed, of course. Do you see the theme here? Are you picking up what the Apostle John is laying down? Do you see the exchange, the exchange of worship on this grand scale? And now then sandwiched between this narrative of gaining or losing a crowd and being willing to put to death in order to stop that swing, we have this short narrative, this individual narrative of these two people. These two people put to the front by the Apostle John for us to see One of them getting what they want. Getting more than she could have ever hoped for. And this is key for us today. Uh, More on this later, but Mary got what she wanted. This isn't a tale of two people who didn't get what they want and one responded right and the other didn't. One of these people got what they wanted. And the other, Judas, not getting what they wanted. But being willing to sin in order to get it. So let's now look at verses 1 through 8. Okay, verse 1. This is now six days before the Passover, so six days before the cross. And Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. As if we'd forgotten about Lazarus, as if we'd forgotten what happened and where that happened. We just learned about it in the previous chapter, right? Uh, This is a little redundant if it's just meant for our information only. So you can sort of feel the purpose and the punch of this reiteration with each statement. It says, even though uh, the Jews were hunting down Jesus after raising Lazarus from the dead, John 11, Jesus came back to Bethany, ooh, where Lazarus was, ooh, where Jesus had raised him from the dead. There's the authorities, and then there's the one who's in charge, and that's Jesus. And now, if you remember, the Jews had just given orders that if anyone were to see Jesus, they were to report his location, his whereabouts, so they could arrest him. But instead of turning Jesus in, verse 2 says, 
So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, of course, and, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at table, reclining with him at table. Uh, this dinner was being held in Jesus' honor. According to Matthew 26 and Mark 14, it was held in the home of Simon the leper, as in Simon the former leper, one of the people that Jesus had healed. They were at his house in Bethany eating this dinner together. Oh, so think about this guest list. You have at least, you have Mary and Martha, you have all 12 disciples, you have a man who was healed of leprosy, a man who was raised from the dead, and the Son of God. There was probably some interesting conversation at that table that day, I would think. Okay, and, and, and if anybody had the temptation to one-up each other with their amazing stories, that would escalate quickly, wouldn't it? And when it says they're reclining at table, this is referring to the manner of the way that they would sit at the table in this time, in this place. Uh, the table would have been uh, lower to the ground. Think maybe even like coffee table height. So the people sitting around it would have to sit on the floor, maybe on top of some pillows, cushions underneath, and they would have leaned on the table with their feet out behind them as they sat and ate. Verse 3. Mary therefore took a pound, that was a Roman pound, so it's about 12 ounces today, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. This would have been imported probably from India. And anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mary just did three crazy things. Number one, she washed a visitor's feet. Uh, This was seen as one of, if not the most, menial tasks of that day. I remember Martha was, was sort of complaining about uh, serving dinner and getting everybody taken care of while Mary was listening to Jesus and washing the crud from the street off of his feet. Uh, by uh, what we can see from these accounts in Scripture, Mary was not the kind of person who should have been washing people's nasty, cruddy feet. Okay, she would have been too important for that kind of a task culturally. It would have been a humiliating task, culturally speaking. And number two, she let her hair down in public. Culturally speaking, you hear a theme there, I'm emphasizing that. Culturally speaking, this would have been considered indecent and perhaps even immoral. Considered being the key word. Uh, Mary didn't care what anyone thought of her. She didn't care if she had to use her own hair to do this grotesque task. She got after it. She was going to serve her Lord and Savior. Crazy thing number three, she just poured a whole lot of money on Jesus' feet and on his head, it says in Mark 14. According to Mark 14, she even broke the jar it came in. This is abandoned. She broke the jar it came in, which which also would have been considered a waste of money. The jar itself was expensive. So just how much money this cost her Well, we're about to find out. Verse 4. But Judas, Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, this parenthetical statement, he who was about to betray him, we get this preview so we understand what's about to happen, what's about to transpire. He said this, 
Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Uh, There's the cost. 300 denarii. So one denarius was equivalent to one day's typical wages. And when you take out your Sabbath days, you take out the festivals, it's about one year's income. One year's income. So to wrap our minds around this today, uh, the internet told me, and it's always right, the median annual income in Michigan would be around forty, forty-five thousand dollars $45,000. If you had a special guest in your home, a special guest in your home, and you really wanted to show them how much you appreciated their visit, do you think you could come up with some way, some way to convey your appreciation that costs you something south of $40,000? We probably could, right? We, I'm sure we all would find some other way. And now the other Gospels tell us that Judas wasn't the only apostle in the room who raised a stink about this aroma. We know that Judas had other reasons. We know that Judas had other reasons, but do you think that maybe you would have been a little shocked yourself if you had been there that day? If someone had just broken and poured out $40,000 worth of perfume? You might have been shocked yourself. I might have said, what are you doing? 12 ounces of perfume, that's a lot of sprays, isn't it? Did we have to break the jar? Did we have to pour all of this out and on his feet? So we might actually have found ourselves sympathizing with Judas, at least externally, and the other apostles in this instance. Uh, For different reasons, the poor do need help, yes? But, verse 6, he, this is Judas, said this. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So let's take uh, that year's salary and give some some of it to the poor and then give some of it to poor old Judas. There was something Judas wanted and he was willing to sin in order to get it. And when he didn't get it, as he saw it being poured out, when he didn't get it, sin welled up in his heart. Verse 7, Jesus said, his response to this, leave her alone. And this verb, it was said in the second person singular, meaning even though other apostles had also had a concern for the cost of the ointment of the perfume, Jesus' rebuke was directed specifically solely to Judas alone. He knew what Judas was up to. He knew the desires of the heart that were motivating Judas' actions and words. He said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. And it sounds like there's two possibilities for what Jesus just said, what he meant there. Either there was some left in the bottle for the day of Jesus' death, so maybe like 20,000 out, 20,000 remains or something like that, which doesn't actually seem to go along with the spontaneity and the outpouring of worship that that just occurred here with Mary. Or Jesus is referring to the fact that it was better to have not sold this bottle, that it was better not to have done that, but... Uh, instead, to keep it because it was used to prepare his body for burial. 
which was coming in six days. I think that's the right one. Mark 14 answers that for us. Jesus says in Mark 14, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. So there's your answer. Verse 8. Why is this right? Verse 8. For the poor you always have with you. The poor you always have with you. There will always be more opportunities to help the poor. But you do not always have me. And me in the Greek in the original language was placed in, in what's called the emphatic position in, in the language. So that means that Christ said it more like this. Maybe we would say it this way in English. The poor you always have with you, but me you will not always have. So in these verses, Jesus isn't saying, he's not saying, don't take care of the poor because you'll never truly eradicate poverty. That's not the message. That'd be a bad takeaway from this, from this passage. What Jesus is doing is setting up a comparison of priority. A comparison of priority. There are the poor. And think about this, though. When Jesus said poor, Judas probably heard cha-ching. Because that meant money for me. There are the poor... And then there's him, Jesus. Which one of those two is of greater significance? The poor, our Lord and Savior, the Son of God, Jesus the Christ. And Judas doesn't even want to serve the poor. What he wants is the money. What Judas wants most is a wealthy Judas. Judas did what he did because he wanted what he wanted and there was an exchange of glory and in Judas' heart, something supplanted God's rightful first place and therefore Judas was willing to sin in order to get what he wanted and he sinned when he saw that he wasn't going to get what he desired. Remember the big picture here of the Sanhedrin and their fear of the loss of what they wanted most. There had been an exchange of glory in their hearts. God's place of preeminence had been supplanted, and therefore they were willing to sin in order to keep what they wanted, and they sinned because it appeared they were losing what they so desperately wanted to keep. And we see that the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, and Judas, and everyone, were not all that different after all. When we sin, there is always an exchange of glory. Something, some created thing supplants God's place of preeminence and love and glory and worship so that we are willing to sin against God in order to get that, whatever that is. And we sin when we don't get it. This is how our hearts work. We do what we do because we want what we want. So then, and this is where we really have to listen and by God's grace understand this. Um, and we are all, I'm right with you, we are all learning this. Who is the person who is in contrast in this story to the Sanhedrin and in contrast to Judas? Who's the other person it's Mary. Mary. 
Judas wanted money, right? Judas wanted a wealthy Judas. The Jewish leaders wanted prominence, power, status quo. What did Mary want? Say, well, Mary wanted to take care of Jesus. No. Mary wanted Jesus to remember her so she could get to heaven. No. Um, Mary wanted to show everyone how much she loved Jesus. No. Mary wanted to give everything she had to Jesus. No. Mary wanted to experience the worship of Jesus. That might sound close, but it's still very far. No. Listen to what Jesus said again. The poor you will always have with you, but me, but me, but me, you will not always have. What did Mary want? She wanted Jesus. She wanted Jesus. He was her joy. He was her great prize. He was the object of her affection. Mary valued Jesus higher than all. Jesus held the utmost and the highest worth in Mary's heart. Nothing was supplanting God's rightful place of prominence in her heart in that moment. So she did exactly what she wanted to do. Mary didn't overcome all the other desires. She was doing what she wanted to do. Mary did what she did because she wanted what she wanted. And she wanted Jesus. So she did what was right. Anything else is legalism. Anything else is empty religion. Godliness is not not doing what you want to do. That's not godliness. Godliness is wanting to do what is right because you love and worship Jesus. And if you want to do what you know is wrong and you don't want to worship Jesus, something's wrong. Something is in God's rightful place. Something has grabbed a hold of your affections. So Christian, look to Jesus. There were so many amazing things and people in that dining room. Simon the leper was there. Would have been a great guy to have on your friends list, right? Lazarus, for crying out loud, Lazarus was there. Alive. All twelve apostles were in that room. Mary and Martha, they're pretty cool. They were there. They had super good food, I'm sure. Some of us, that's enough. Who cares about the people? The food, I'm there. They even had this crazy expensive ointment that cost a whole year's salary. They had stuff to show. And not a single person... Not a single possession in that room came even close to the worth of Jesus Christ. Did that perfume itself even appropriately equate or cover the greatness of God? Even it fell short of Christ's worth. 
How can you ever even take a created thing and compare it to the worth of its creator? Christian, do you believe that Jesus is worth just as much now as he was worth 2,000 years ago? And I don't care what the world thinks. You shouldn't care what the world thinks. Even in that room that day with all those people who would say they love Jesus, it seemed like Mary was the only one outside of Jesus who got this. Is Jesus worth more to you than all your friends and family? Is Jesus worth more to you than all your money? Is Jesus worth more to you than all your possessions, all your hobbies, all your reputations, all your time, all your plans, every bit of your schedule? Does anything you have or anyone you know or anything you wish you had or anyone you wish you knew even come close to the worth of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior? You can never make an idol out of Jesus. Never. You can never think too much of him. You can never make an idol out of Jesus. But you can make an idol out of anything else. If anyone else in that room that day, as amazing as they might have been, had said, the poor you will always have with you, but me you will not always have. That would have been so arrogant. That would have been so prideful. But Jesus was right to say that. Why? He's God. He's God. He is our prize. Not even heaven. Not a better life. Not answered prayers. Not smooth sailing. As great as those things might be, they fall short. And those are for me. God does not exist for my good pleasure. And remember, that is the first step towards idolatry. Jesus is the greatest. He holds the greatest worth. He is not a means to an end. He is the beginning and the end. And that's why the Apostle Paul wrote these amazing truths. Philippians 3, 7 through 14. His testimony. Whatever gain I had. And remember, he was one of those Pharisees. He was one of those men. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost. Everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own, it's not possible. Not a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. You won't want those things if Jesus isn't worth what He's worth to you. That by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this. Or I'm already perfect, and God's, all God's people said amen to that. But I press on to make it my own, because Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, all those things that have been idols to me, 
putting it all behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the prize. A prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Who's the prize? Jesus. Everything I ever wanted. I can't wait till I have everything I ever wanted. Well, it better be Jesus. And this is amazing. 2 Corinthians 3. 12 through 18. Since we have such a hope, we're very bold. Not like Moses, who, who put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Remember, uh, God showed a bit of his glory to Moses and his face was glowing and the people couldn't even see him. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the Law, the Old Testament, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. When they read the Bible, they don't get it. This is the veil. This is it. You ready? Do what's right so you can get. That's the veil. Do what's right so you can get God's favor. Do what's right so you can get good life. Do what's right so you can get good relationships. Do what's right so that you can... This is legalism. Legalism. Verse 16, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. Not with new laws, in the face of glory. We're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Progressive sanctification. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We sin because of that exchange of glory. Something supplants God's place in our heart. And we want something that is not right. That is something that is not God. And so we sin. Our wanters are broken. So how do I change my wanter? So it wants what God wants. Beholding the glory of the Lord. Those people are being transformed into the same image. Christian, do you want to change and grow? Look to Jesus. See his worth. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Learn of his superior glory, his love, his greatness. And when you see the worth of Jesus, and you want Jesus more than anything this world has to offer, you will change. You will worship. Because you want to. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. May Jesus, First Baptist, may Jesus be preeminent in our hearts that we might present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. Church, he is worthy. Jesus is worthy of all. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Ascribe to the Lord, worship the Lord in the splendor 
of holiness. Let's pray together. Father, there are so many things that we see in this world. There are so many ways our heart is pulled away from who you are and your greatness, your superiority to all things. Lord, you are holy, holy, holy. There is nothing like you. There is nothing that even comes close to your worth. God, help us that we would see and be amazed, be in awe and reverence of who you are. May we be thankful for your grace that you've given to us in Christ, the forgiveness of our sin, our salvation in him. God, forgive us. We so often write up our own new rules and we judge accordingly. God, that's not how people grow. May we love you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength and never put any other God before you so that we might want to do that which is pleasing to you. And God, we thank you for the joy that we get as a fruit of that. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.